Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name is Greg Brady. It's a Monday edition, June 22nd. Here's what we've got on tap. A terrible, terrible tragedy over the weekend. A father of four, 62-year-old man, shot in his own apartment. Relatives had asked for a wellness check, and later... He's dead, and we're trying to figure out why, trying to get you answers as to why. It was a mental health call. The family didn't want armed police, but at the same time, police on audio are telling him to put down the guns. So we've got something here. We'll address this and more when it comes to wellness checks. Ontario parents and kids got three options for opening up the school year in the fall, and a report over the weekend says there's almost going to be a definitive Mix of online learning and in-class sessions. What's the MPP for Davenport and the NDP education critic Merritt Stiles think about this? Very excited to talk to Robin Urbach, current affairs columnist. Yeah, we got to go to Trump. We got to go to Tulsa. What happened? I was a little obsessed with the coverage on Saturday night and bring it back a little closer to hand. Masks. She's been an advocate for it. I've been an advocate for it. We've been a little late in getting them on our faces. We're doing better now, but there's still some people that aren't complying. In Hamilton today, you need a mask to ride public transit. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I hope everyone, I know people were uh, all set, couldn't wait to start enjoying stage two. You move from stage one to stage two on Friday. Most of us did, and I know they're waiting for this. This is like getting, you know, the cuts. You ever try out for a sports team and they used to post the cuts like your high school basketball team, you would and Doug Ford's like the coach of everything. I, you know, you know, take that for what it's worth. That it maybe, you know, seems like a football coach, but get him in the pool for some water polo. Uh my dad is an athlete, right? P- played college hockey, coached the water polo team for one year uh as a history teacher in high school. It went rather disastrously. He'd come home, I'd be like do you even know the rules? Like, what's the biggest insult you can lay on somebody when they don't know sports? They're like, do you even watch the games? I'm not sure he watched uh, the Clark Road Trojans water polo team uh, for that fateful probably 82, 83 season. I couldn't tell you what season it was. I, j- I just knew he was a bad fit. But Doug Ford is the coach of all your sports teams. And in Toronto and in Peel and in uh, Windsor-Essex, You'll get to know today if you move to, to stage two or not. Look, um, we still got to take this virus very seriously. Hasn't changed. It's just as contagious. It's just as potentially deadly. Every day I try and read one story, or one story seems to come across my Twitter timeline, or it's a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, something like that, where you hear about something happening to a, a younger person. Okay, We, we know. We know death-wise, it's it's stuck basically to the initial concerning groups. Older people. Older people. 85% of deaths in this country have been for people over 70, and it's near over 90 for people over 60. So there there is the odd case. There's no question about it. But what concerns me it isn't, it, of course it's the deaths. Of course it's protecting our more vulnerable. Of course it's protecting the elderly, which... Let's face it, long-term care-wise, we know long-term care, retirement home, we know we didn't do a great job. We know this already. It's documented. And we need to find out a lot more reasons why in the weeks and months to come why we didn't do such a good job. But I'll tell you this. Every day I see a story, and it's, I'm 28. I thought I wasn't as vulnerable. I got it. My sense of, you know, bad week and a half, was sick. My sense of smell still hasn't returned. My sense of taste doesn't feel the same. 
I walk a block and a half. I used to run. I walk a block and a half, and I'm winded. And those are the stories that are, are the ones that keep me up at night. Of course we're all concerned about our own mortality, and of course we're doing everything we can to protect the more vulnerable of us. You know, there's like the, Friday there's the announcement about kids potentially going back to school, kids who are five, kids who are 18. And it's, it's obviously going to be discussed at the university level, at the college level. There's people that are already deferring their first year, and I understand that completely. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to do this right now if you're a parent to be, you know, overly or or not as much concerned about your kids. And then I watch one of my favorite shows, Real Time with Bill Maher, and and he's like, you millennials. <laughs> he's playing the, uh, you know, the age, age not class warfare, but he's p- playing uh, demographic warfare. And he's saying, those millennials, you got to get out there and you got to, you know, keep the economy going. And the older folks, you need to stay home. You need to understand this isn't your fight right now. And there's an element of of accuracy to that. There's 70-year-olds that want to get out there, right? Want to go to casinos, want to go for dinner, want to go to the racetrack, want to go visit here, visit there, get on airplanes, get on cruise ships, no less. And it's a real struggle to, uh, you know, they're like, I come on, I, I just retired. I earned it. You know, I worked my whole life so I could have this freedom and you're taking it away from me. Yeah, for right now we are. <laughs> yeah, for right now we kind of have to. Okay, you, you shouldn't get to move as freely out there if you're 75 and be as cavalier as if you're 25 or 30. And I don't think anyone should be being cavalier about this. We're going to get to uh, a lot of COVID-19 issues. Um, we're we're going to keep it interesting. We're going to keep it honest. And we're going to get at some uh, some things that are more accurate than less accurate. Put it that way. Put it that way about it. OK, uh, if you want to reach me, you can get me on Twitter. Greg Brady T.O. Uh, I'm there. And I will respond in kind here all week for Bill Kelly. We all expect Bill back in this seat nine o'clock next Monday. That's a good thing for uh, everyone. And hopefully we'll be able to check in with him on the phones a little later on uh, this week. Okay. Uh, Him talking and me talking. um, There may not be any commercials. I can't promise that uh, to our fine advertisers. But, uh, you know, I I would assume that uh, we we both like to uh, we both like to talk. We don't like to hear ourselves talk, but we like to talk. There's a big difference between the two. I want to get to this over the weekend. There's a couple things I want to get to out of the gate uh, on your Monday morning. And there's another death and another police death, another police shooting. Uh, you know, I've, I heard it described earlier this morning as police-related shooting. I don't I don't know about that. It seems like a police shooting to me. It's police shooting someone, but we'll need answers as to why it had to happen that way. We need to figure out why there's a 62-year-old man who died after a police shooting in Mississauga. We're going to need an inquiry. We're going to need to find out how this transpired. And I'll back up and give you some of what we know already, but it's got some complexities to it. Okay? Uh, E. Jazz Chowdhury is no longer alive. Okay? Dad to four children, youngest being a seven-year-old girl. This happened Saturday in the evening. Uh, the family wanted, uh, they got a call around five o'clock Peel police did to say, you got to attend to a man. There's a, he's in a state of crisis is the quote. I'm quoting that from the Toronto sun today. He didn't take his medication. Okay. This is problematic. He's got some issues with schizophrenia. So that situation needed to be deescalated. One of the nephews told police they wanted a family member there to deescalate the situation. I understand that, and I, I I know there has to be a better way to do this. It is not the way right now, 
but we're going to have to move a lot more quickly on this. Okay, When we talk about reforming police, when we talk about changing some of the methodology of what cops do, and there have to be, I know there are, and they struggle right now to say it publicly because it sounds like they're calling out their own industry. It sounds like they're calling out their own colleagues. It sounds like they're calling out the training that they got, the superiors that they work for, the colleagues that they go hand-in-hand with. We know what a difficult job being a cop is. I know it is. I I never wanted to do it. I didn't know if I had the stomach for it. I didn't know if I had the intestinal fortitude to do it. So I praise those who signed up to do it. And we know how many good ones there are. But this is not working. This kind of scenario, these wellness checks are not working. We had the one shooting last week in New Brunswick. We've had two people dead in New Brunswick based on wellness checks within the last five weeks. Okay, last week was a man named Daniel Levy. Prior to that, there was a case involving a woman named Chantel Moore. And now it's a little closer to home in Mississauga. Now, the man did barricade himself inside the residence. That's that's a problem. That's a big problem. Officers were in communication with the man. But around eight o'clock, the man stopped communicating. And at that point, there's no knowledge other than hearsay that that man is alone. There's no knowledge other than hearsay that that man is not a threat to others. Okay? There's an extensive medical history. Once he stops communicating, I understand the police are concerned. He might harm himself. He might harm someone else. I get all that. I support all that. So there's officers on the scene. There's paramedics on the scene. And they made the, the call, and you probably have seen the video, to enter the residence to make sure he's okay. And then there's an interaction between the cops and and the man. There's an 18-second clip that you might have seen on the news. There was the warning. It led the National on CBC last night. It led Global News last night. And I understand again why. Officers can be heard shouting, police, put the gun down. Okay? Now, there are relatives of his there. And again, I am, it, it, it's beyond words, the tragedy that this is. On Father's Day weekend, no less. Here's another father. Okay? Father of four. Those four kids no longer have a dad. The nephews, I give them a ton of empathy and and sympathy and the pain and the agony that, again, this moment caused and soon the questions leading to the answers are going to cause for this family. No question about it. You do hear the cops say, police, put the gun down. Get the guns down, put it down. And shots were fired. And that man is dead. I got a real struggle with understanding what cops are supposed to do if guns are pointed at them. You probably do also. What does it take to escalate to that point? Those are the things we need to find out. What are the things that a wellness check in that situation with weapons, with deadly weapons, can change? Again, we got to start asking those questions. Here's the quote from another man. He's a mentally ill patient. If you come out with guns and tasers, he's going to react. He's schizophrenic. They went to the back back of the balcony with a ladder, and they stood outside. Three of them stood outside. One of them shot him while he, when he was sitting inside. What kind of justice is that? There's a board member at the Muslim Council of Peel that says the family didn't call police, but they called the non-emergency line. They wanted paramedics to come and help assist. Okay, I, I understand the want for that. I understand the desire for that from the family. It doesn't work that way if the man's a threat to himself or others. 
You can't have paramedics go in with no weapons, okay? No tra- And there's training. Sure, there is. But you can't have paramedics go in with no weapons and attempt to subdue someone who has them. It won't, it won't happen. We need to find some kind of hybrid solution here. We need to find some kind of meeting in the middle, okay? The Muslim Council Appeal representative claims the man was holding a single kitchen knife. I'm trying to take that at face value. The cops say police put the gun down. Did they misrepresent either accidentally or, you know, we don't want to think about this right now. Otherwise, that the man had a knife that was mistaken or misrepresented as a gun, we won't know until there's an inquiry. But there does need to be a public inquiry, okay? And this is the level of distrust that's there right now. The people, the relatives, the communities, the vulnerable communities, the communities where there are more people of color, more black people, more brown people, they don't trust SIU. They don't trust the Special Investigations Unit to take over the case and give you the proper answers here. So we have to find a better way. I don't know what that way is for, but the cops need to work internally. I said this last week a couple different times. Stuff only gets fixed from the inside. And there needs to be a watchdog, obviously, to suggest certain things. But this story is a real mess and a real tragedy. And I understand the family wanting answers. Okay? I'm inclined to say that, you know, Monday morning comes. We're talking on Monday morning. And this 62-year-old man should not be dead. There were issues. There were problems. There was a medical history. There were, you know, mental issues. With this person, obviously, if he's taking medication and stopped taking medication and someone ordered a wellness check on him. But these wellness checks are going to have to go differently. It can't be it can't seem to that person that they're checking on like a SWAT team's banging down the door, especially if that's going to aggravate paranoia, aggravate aggressiveness. Again, the cops may absolutely have done all the right things here. They may have. I can't talk for 10, 12 minutes here and tell you that I know that they didn't do the right things. But I don't know that they did. And neither do you. And neither does the family. That's why you got to get answers on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, uh, it's a real interest. It's kind of two layers to this. Sick Kids, the hospital in in Toronto, does so much incredible work, published and, and put it out there and got a lot of PR behind it, a proposed approach to return to school. And it generated a lot of different opinions, right? It, some doctors are like, that's exactly right. Some of the doctors from Sick Kids were right behind that legislation. But it got an awful lot of other people thinking, especially in a scenario with education, where there is, there's no one good solution here for what we do with Ontario's kids from age 5 to 18. And like I said earlier, even the colleges and universities, they're, you know, they're, the professors, the, the TAs, they're having to you know, plan things on, on very much on two prongs, depending on where we're at. In September, whether we're not on campuses at all, whether we're slightly on campuses periodically, and whether or not it's, you know, full uh, full go, full speed ahead going into September. I, I think that's the least likely scenario. NDP education critic uh, Merritt Stiles uh, joins me now on the Bill Kelly Show. Merritt, it's Greg Brady. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks for making the time today. Oh, it's great to be here. Tell me about your reaction last week. And I, I bring up the two prongs because that's where I want to go with you. Wednesday, the Sick Kids report comes out. 
you know, there's some ideas in there. There's some concepts, but a lot of people, a lot of epidemiologists looked at what was being said and said, there's a little bit of sketchiness here. There's a lot of fill in the blanks type stuff. It was referenced several times by Premier Ford, by Education Minister Lecce on Friday, as many predicted. Were you a little skeptical uh, that the two are working almost two hand in hand and, and ignoring the advice of a lot of epidemiologists about what September should look like in our schools for our kids? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I like to think that and, and assume that what was going on there was hopefully that the, 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 the great folks at SickKids thought they could contribute in some way to um, the, the big conversation that we're all having about what, how do we make our school reopening safe? How do we keep everybody moving forward in fighting the COVID pandemic? But I mean, I think what I saw, honestly, was, um, you know, a, a great, a, an interesting report, but it was lacking, not just in the perspective of those epidemiologists who are really the experts of the pandemic, but also the insight of educators, um, of parents. <laughs> you know, yeah. what is it, if it, when a teachers and lots of teachers looked at that report and said, you know what, what's missing here is they don't understand how classrooms work. And they don't understand, you know, uh, for example, high school, uh, really none of the scenarios that they talked about really apply to a high school environment. Yeah, and it struck me as well. Uh, for If I'm a teacher, um, I'm, I'm very concerned. There's not a lot, there was not a lot laid out there, Merit, about PPE and protection. And, you know, there I know teachers that are concerned that if that stuff isn't ready, if, it, if it's not available uh, and they don't start ordering it soon, it, it won't be there in schools. Think about how widespread we got to get in Ontario to get protection for teachers who have, you know, 18 kindergarten kids or 20 grade eight kids. We have to protect those people. Exactly. And I mean, you know, I, the other thing I think that the kids report maybe missed um, and again, I'm no, I'm not a medical expert here, but is that um, it talked a lot about, you know, children and, and their, the risk of COVID-19 to children, but it really kind of failed to acknowledge that, you know, there's a lot of adults working in our schools who are also in touch with those kids. So if you, if you don't have, if you're not dealing with the PPE and the masks and, and proper infection control, those very people too are at significant risk. How around the clock uh, do we have to be working to find a solution? Look, there's no one, you, me, every listener listening to us right now, wants kids to return to school this fall. But it's got to be done properly. It's got to have some you know, some merit based on here's where it has worked because this isn't like any other illness. This isn't like any other time in our society. And there's not a lot of concrete examples from the past to rely on. We've got to use the data we've got right now for what's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, we, we all I'm a parent of uh, I've got one teenager still at home. And uh, I think you know, I, I think of all those parents that I've talked to over the last few months who are struggling, really, you know, with with kids, small children at home, juggling their own work and and their kids schoolwork. It's been really, really tough. And the truth is, we all know that the economy cannot really get moving forward until until our kids are in school and in daycare. That's going to be crucial. So, so how, but how do we do it safely? And I think what we saw on Friday was the government made two big announcements, one about funding and one about a sort of three different options for op- reopening in the fall. And unfortunately, what it said to me was the government isn't getting it. Uh, they, A, didn't incre- really provide any increase in funding to help with PP and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they also um, really are pushing the, they're kicking the can down the road a bit and, and forcing uh, school boards to make a lot of big calls. And it left a lot of people asking, what have you been doing for the last few months? Because uh, it didn't sound like they'd come very far down the road of, of deciding what it might look like to return to school. 
Merritt Stiles, our guest on the Bill Kelly Show. My name is Greg Brady. She's uh, MPP for Davenport, but also the NDP's education critic. The the struggle for kids, look, the Sick Kids Report brought up that uh, they're worried about kids' wellness and, and well-being. We all are. Sports has been postponed. Activities have been postponed. Kids are graduating online. It's everything is uh, has been, you know, ripped asunder and 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 turned on its on its head, basically. But but that doesn't yeah that that's not perfect but guess what neither is sending kids to school at the risk of bringing it back into their house neither would be seeing mom or dad uh, get COVID-19 because we thought it was important to get kids back uh, to some sense of normalcy. Again, no perfect solution, but I, you know, I, I looked at that aspect of the report and I thought, yes, I understand that aspect of it, but I also go, there's no, there's no panacea by sending kids back to school. Heard a click and we might've lost merit tem- temporarily. Okay, we did. We'll try. Why don't we break now? See if we can get her back on. I've got a couple more questions. There's a couple questions from people on Twitter. So why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? She might be calling back and we could hold it here. And I could ask my slightly less long-winded question back to her because I heard the click and I thought that might just be someone tapping in. Merritt Styles uh, returns to us. Sorry about that. We lost you temporarily. You did. I don't know. Phone drops, whatever. <laughs> it's <laughs> a Monday. Back. It's a, The phone's having a case of the Mondays. These things happen. Oh, my goodness. I, I was mentioning earlier how this, the Sick Kids report did document they're worried about kids' well-being. And, and, yes, they've lost sports. They've lost group activities. They have camps this summer, day camp or overnight camp. So I, I get it from, from a mental health perspective. Parents are doing everything they can to, to check in on their kids. All of us good parents are. But sending them back to school... There's a lot of kids that that follow the news. There's a lot of kids that, especially at, at an older age, that are more worried about the concept of going back to school, infecting their teachers, or even bringing it back into their home. There's no perfect solution here, but we need more than just, well, it's it's better for the kids mentally to be in school. I'm not so sure based on all these circumstances. Yeah, you know, I think that it's a lot, and I think we see it at all ages. What I'm hearing from parents as, is, as well is that, um, a lot of kids, and we know this just reading the news, too, and a lot of the health reports, is that a lot of students, young people, are experiencing a lot of social anxiety. Um, so there's, sure, you know, there's definitely depression. There's issues about that that separation from your friends and your community at school. And it's been really, really hard as well for a lot of students to to do this online emergency learning thing. It's, it's just really difficult for a lot of kids. Um, so I think... There's a lot of great reasons why, of course, we want to get our students back to school as quote unquote usual um, as as quickly as possible. But, you know, I I think we absolutely have to acknowledge that um, that is probably not a reality. Uh, It's whatever we come back as in September, it's not going to be like it was uh, in 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 February when we when we were last basically in school. It's going to change. And the government is saying, look, you can we can we can imagine a scenario where kids maybe rotate. So you might have like 15 kids that come in for in a class of Tuesday for Tuesday and Thursday and the other 15 come in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. um, And it alternates like that. But that has huge logistical issues associated with it, too. And parents are going to be wondering, well, what do I do with my children on those days when they're not actually in school? So, you know, in a situation like that, we're still dealing with. Um, a lot of parents not being able to get their kids back. And I do think, and the, and the government is even kind of, I think, banking on the fact that a lot of families will not feel safe sending their students to school no matter what. 
Yeah, the, the the one thing, and I do give I give the Ford government credit. I wonder if you do as well. I, I think the the approach, and I, they didn't have this approach at first, but they adapted on the fly, and we're all doing that. But I think the the idea of opening regionally in stages, and Minister Lecce laid it out, and he said we will also do this by region. There's there's no distinction between you know uh, a a school like uh, Parkdale High School in downtown Toronto having the same circumstances as a as a, you know a, as a school out in the sticks in northern Ontario. I I understand that scenario would be different for certain parents, just like it is across our country. There are provinces that go days without new positive cases. As we know, that's not the case in the GTA. That's not the case in, uh, you know, in the Golden Horseshoe. We are, we are seeing more of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, on Friday, it really did sound like the minister was providing that bit of flexibility to boards. But then on Saturday, he seemed to change his tune again. And he, he made a, a brief announcement where he said, you know, everybody is expected to try this modified model um, everyone and i think that's that was actually a step backward because in fact it's true there's no way that uh, the issues confronting a like a remote rural or northern school um are very different from what we're confronting here not just because of well obviously because of the pandemic and the different rates of infection but also just the reality um you know and a lot of school boards one of the first concerns that a lot of school boards have right now and this is also in the gthA is is transportation yeah. how are we going to manage this uh, this whole with the PPE on the buses, but also getting those school, those students to school um, in as safe a way as possible. So, you know, this is something that many families rely on and just saying, no, we're not going to have busing is just not going to be an option. And keeping bus drivers safe, Merritt, that's like right away. That's, that's right. the first thing you think Absolutely. of is, is keeping them safe. Absolutely. And if something something happens to a bus driver and they get sick, oh uh, you know, we, we don't know how how widespread their bubble is. We don't know how many kids we have to test as a result of that. And and that's the thing. There aren't answers about substitute teachers. There aren't answers about, you know, the potential for, for other people coming in the school and, and being able to trace if there's an outbreak at a high school, how, how, you know, how valid will the tracing be to be able to figure out who brought it, who potentially brought it into the school and keeping them isolated until they're better. Right, exactly. And I mean, just on the bus drivers again, you know, my understanding is that a uh, very high percentage of bus drivers right now in, across the province are over 60. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is also a higher risk uh, group of workers and they will be put at risk. And then, yeah, if you think about like the logistics of so you've got a, a teacher who's also juggling kids, we've got a lot of teachers have children who are school age and then their children are going to be home on some days. Uh Everybody, what we, and I guess this is again where the sick kids report, I think, may have, have may not really addressed this well enough, which is that, you know, schools are not just about children, they're also about all of the other people that work there and the families that are connected to it. And so you, you can't just isolate it and say students are going to be safe, so therefore everybody else is okay. The truth is, um, everybody is, is connected. And so if, even if the children are less at risk, and we, we don't really know all this, but if they are less at risk of being, you know, really, really sick from COVID, the truth is that they can still transmit it. Um, adults in their lives, and we know how this pandemic has gone. Um, somewhere down the road, there's somebody who's more vulnerable who's going to get sick. Merritt Stiles, education critic for the NDP, the opposition party here in Ontario. We'll be watching again at uh, 1 o'clock, see what the province says. Thank you very much for the time today. I appreciate our conversation. Thanks so much. Stay well out there. Got it. Merritt Stiles, uh, MPP for Davenport. Yeah, look, I don't doubt there are good intentions from sick kids. I don't doubt that there there are very good people there. There seem to be, again, some, some corners cut.
Okay, and it's epidemiologists saying that there and, you know, to go way out there, you would suggest it's almost, a, you know, a, to make the government announcement. They released that on Wednesday and that's in concert with knowing the government's making the announcement on Friday. The government's making their announcement on Friday in concert with the sick kids report coming out on Wednesday. It makes it more palatable. It makes it more referential, which, again, Ford and Lecce both did that. I don't doubt they've got students uh, at the at top of mind and the safety of teachers. I can see it in Doug Ford when he talks, okay? You can disagree on policy, but you can't disagree on, on his humanity here. You cannot about what he wants for schools. And he's got to weigh the, eco- the economic factors. He's got to weigh the balance. He's got to weigh the ability for people to be able to go back to work and know that their kids are in a safe place. Right now, there is, there is beyond... Uh, a perfect solution, but I don't. Sick kids telling schools and education officials to to let kids, you know, huddle up together in the classroom, no masks. Um, you know, we're telling people to wear masks when they're not able to social distance because masks reduce the transmission of the damn virus. So sick kids telling, hey, it's cool, they're kids, and kids aren't getting sick. You're missing the boat completely. You're missing the boat completely on how many kids are testing positive. Yeah, yeah, not getting sick. They're not dying. I always say this. If 14-year-olds were, were, you know, dropping dead left, right, and center, like like it is a movie, like this, like a worse movie than what Contagion was, per se, we're not having any of these conversations. I'm not in a studio right now. You're not being able to go to Tim Hortons and get a coffee. We're all still locked down as tight as it gets. But those things aren't true, Okay. So if we're asking kids to wear masks when they go into Loblaws with their parents, and we're asking kids to potentially wear masks when they return to sport or go to the cottage or to be eight eight feet away from grandpa, we're not asking them to wear masks when they're associating with 17, 18 of their peers in a room that doesn't have great ventilation, indoors, and in cold weather. It's all great and fine now with the temperature. It won't be in November. Like last I checked, yeah, like climate change is a thing. It's not going to be 23 degrees feeling like 28 um, on Remembrance Day or two weeks before Christmas, okay? It's kind of well documented what, what our weather gets like here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This didn't go well for Donald Trump in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday uh, evening. I, 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 I made sure I was around. I wanted to see coverage of it on, on CNN, MSNBC. And yes, I flipped over to, uh, that, that network that shall remain nameless. I couldn't get enough. 6,200 people, uh, showed up for the rally. And there's all this talk about TikTok and K-pop fans buying up all the tickets. And they're going to do the same when he does another rally in Arizona. Uh, I couldn't get enough of the coverage. Please to, uh, welcome in Current affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. She's a must-read in that newspaper. Uh, Robin Urbach. Robin, thanks very much. Were you the same? Were you? Was your obsession level Saturday night equal to mine to see how this all would go? It was. I was glued to it. <laughs> but like most Trump rallies, it went on so long. I kid you not. I I stepped away. I made dinner. I ate dinner. Mm-hmm. I came back, and he was still going at it. So I mean, it's the same thing that we've kind of come to expect. But this is. I guess the U.S.'s version of nature is healing. Trump is back in a in an arena yelling at people and, and saying sort of nonsensical things. And this is their kind of attempt at back to normal, although it wasn't quite as normal as Trump rallies normally are because it wasn't 
quite as populated as the campaign had expected, which turned out to be an big, a big embarrassment for the president and for his campaign team. As you say, it was about 6,200 <laughs> people ended up showing up and the team had touted beforehand that it would be closer to a million. So that was a bit of a red face moment for the president and for his team. An orange face moment, if you will. Exactly. It was, yeah. Very uh, good. Yeah. The way, and, and he canceled the, uh, he was supposed to speak outside as well uh, to the overflow crowd. And when there's no overflow, there's no need to speak. The amazing thing is, though, I, I picture I picture being, you know, an, an up and coming, uh, you know, brilliant, well-educated speech writer for, for Trump and, and going through all the stuff and then doing all the work. And look, they, those people have to go to bed at night. They have to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror. I get it. But but at the same time, he just goes so unscripted, like all the all the bullet points you might make about the election and the policy and the things that have actually gone well. He didn't even do any of that on Saturday. It was just a lot of whining. It was a lot of whining, and the biggest tangent, I think, was when he was explaining a moment about a week or two ago when he was filmed walking down a ramp very slowly. And, there, of course, there was all sorts of speculations about what's wrong with Trump and why is he walking like that. And uh, he used two hands to drink a glass of water, and people were speculating, oh, maybe the president has Parkinson's. So he spent maybe it was 20 minutes, maybe it was a little bit longer, explaining why he was walking down the ramp so slowly. And then he showed off, that was perhaps the moment of the rally on Saturday, he showed off his ability to drink a glass of water with one hand. He did that a couple of times, and then he tossed the glass down on the stage. It was almost like a, you know, I thought back to like the old WWE moments when a wrestler (laughs) would take a drink and then throw it across the stage and the crowd would go wild and Jim Ross on the side would be you know, yelling his commentary is almost that sort of thing. The crowd loved it, but it was so bizarre just to hear these tangents that, as you say, have nothing to do with the election, nothing to do with anything, really. It's about why he was walking slowly and drinking a glass with two hands. But this is this is normal. This is what happens at these rallies. I think this one probably had more attention from people who weren't mm-hmm. physically there just because it's been so long since we've seen one of these things. But this is part and parcel of a Trump rally. It's it's kind of off the wall. It has nothing to do with anything. It's wickedly entertaining, but it's so bizarre at the same time. Robin Urbach joining us from the Globe and Mail. Greg Brady in for Bill Kelly, 900 CHML. Yeah, it, it, it does seem like just this huge, um, you know, it's either that book I read in college, The Lottery, or it's like this just giant human petri dish experiment Mm -hmm. um you know and and i i do you know cringe at the idea that that some levels of the media will uh you know champion or or even laugh at positive cases that come out of this because i i think you'd concur this says this has taken a distinct turn for the worse in a lot of states what what new york has done well what michigan's done well what new jersey's done well it's all going uh, belly up in a lot in a state like Oklahoma, obviously Florida, obviously Texas. It's it's you know it's gone totally south, and as a result, the president's not telling anyone to wear masks. He's almost suggesting it's an act of weakness, and mm-hmm. a lot of that base is following suit and being really reckless with their health. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, it's something that we haven't seen too much in Canada. Thankfully, this really partisan division between. Um, following public health advice and not. So what we see is a lot of Republicans fueled by by Trump and others who see masks, as you said, as a sign of weakness. So in these gatherings, they've decided that they're just going to go and 
not listen to anyone else and, and do what they think is correct. And we may see, I mean, epidemiologists are pointing at this as the, the perfect example of what could be a super spreader event. You have an indoor event where people are yelling and cheering and not wearing masks and packed close together. I mean, the unfortunate thing, too, with this rally is that mm-hmm. there was so much empty space in that arena that theoretically they could have done some social distancing and spread people out. But, of course, it wouldn't have looked so great. The shots of Trump mm-hmm. and behind him, a whole bunch of empty seats, people separated by a couple of chairs. But if anything, that would have been a great way to sort of mitigate the potential dangers of an event like this, spreading people out. But of course, for the camera, you want to see everyone packed in to make it seem like it's a a major, major event. So, I mean, I think we're all hoping that nothing really comes from this, that we don't see this turn into a super spreader event. But Oklahoma is is one of those states that has really been trending in the wrong direction. And these are the sorts of events that can accelerate that trend pretty dramatically. Robin Urbach from the Globe Mail joins one more on Trump, and then I want to we'll uh, localize things a little bit. I I believed in November that uh, that the Democratic nominee, be it Biden or Sanders or Warren, would win. Um, I was more resolute about that by February. Now, to me, it's a no-brainer. The only question is by how much. Do you like Trump will win a state like Oklahoma? No, no Democrats won it since uh, since Jimmy Carter. But there's a lot of states that he barely won that he just isn't going to this time around. Um, and and the, even states like Florida, Texas, Arizona are so up for grabs right now. Do you have any doubts about November's result at this point? Um, I have doubts only because we were. So confident about Hillary Clinton last time around and the polling was unequivocal that she would sort of sweep it and, and there was no chance that Trump would come through. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the numbers now and the way various states are lining up, particularly the swing states, it seems like it's a no brainer that Trump just has no chance. And as coronavirus sees its second wave or as some epidemiologists are calling it the extension of the first wave in the United States, it seems like his prospects will just get worse and worse as the states really start to fall apart and fall victim to this virus. But I think things are so Mm. unpredictable. We'll see the president kind of delegitimize mail-in voting and and other methods of um, alternatively kind of people casting their votes. So I, I I would mm-hmm. think logically that, no, I mean, this is going to be Biden's to, to take away. There's no way that Trump can survive all of the things that he's sort of been pi- piloting for the past several months and years. But I don't know. You never know. And, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. totally count him out. Um, Hamilton's going to make uh, face masks mandatory today for transit. Um, they're going to make some exceptions. If you've got difficulty breathing, it's a it's a really hot day. So riding a bus isn't fun when it's. Uh, humid exit 36. Uh, I remember that from uh, from university. I you know don't want to relive that, but people have to, and 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 if they want to leave a car at home, that's beneficial as well. Um, this is coming to Toronto with the TTC. It's coming. Look, everyone's been late on masks. Everyone's been late locally, municipally, provincially, federally. Um, what what element of success do you think it will have? The TTC is waiting till close to I think it's July 8th was the date, and that was announced about two weeks ago. So they're giving people a lot of prep. Do you think we see success here? Because we know that you know riding the subway, riding the go train, it's people are going to have to have some faith and trust it again. But they also don't want to get on with a mask to take all the precautions and see a bunch of people without them. Yeah, I think for the most part we're going to see a lot of compliance. Um, 
people have, have generally, I think, where it's been mandated, for example, in certain stores that are only allowing masks, people generally understand. But of course, with a store, if you don't want to wear a mask, you can go into a different store. With the TTC, that option isn't really there. Um, the problem will be with enforcement. Um, drivers are not going to have the, the training or the time or the capacity to enforce it. And the TTC has basically said, well, we're not really going to. If you come on without a mask, then fine, we'll still let you on. Um, I think th- there'll be another challenge, too. There are exceptions, as you mentioned, people with health conditions to asthma, for example, are, are recommended not to be wearing a mask. I think we might see a few unfortunate incidences where people get on a bus or a streetcar or whatever else with, without wearing a mask and well-meaning people try to sort of shame them or I can see the cell phones coming out saying, why aren't you wearing a mask? And it, the onus will be on those people to constantly have to explain, well, I can't actually because of this health condition or what have you. So there will be a few complications. There's no doubt about that. But I think for the most part, we'll see pretty good compliance. I hope so, at least, mm-hmm. because it's a relatively inobtrusive measure that we can all take. doesn't really cost anything. You can use a scarf if you want to, although in this weather, nobody wants to do that. Um, but the, the benefits are, are pretty huge. And the the cost of the individual really isn't that significant. Last thing, schools in Ontario. Um, I, I empathize with every side of this. I empathize with the, with the politicians, with, with Ford, with Lecce. They want, the, you know, it's certainly going to ding our economy if schools aren't at least, you know, moderately open in September, going all the way from, from JK up to grade 12. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I think there was some suspicion in some circles that there was some corroboration with the Sick Kids report, that the timing for uh, and the timing and the data behind it um, just didn't just didn't hold enough water with a, an awful lot of respected epidemiologists. Yeah, there are a few elements in there that seem to raise a couple eyebrows. Um, I think this is just a big mess, frankly. <laughs> uh, I, uh, Ontario still has a few months to kind of get it together. Um, we know actually Quebec has actually seen pretty good success with its return to schools. Granted, it returned to schools in warmer weather when kids could go outside. And only about 50% of kids actually came back. And high school students, of course, didn't come back as well. So Mm. all of that success comes with a grain of salt. And we've also seen in places like France and Israel that did reopen schools, they had to reclose their schools when infection started spreading. So Ontario, I mean, this will be a tough one to figure out. It looks like we're going to have some kind of hybrid model where no more than 15 students are in the classroom. But there's so many things to figure out. Like if you have siblings at the same school, for example, are we going to guarantee that those siblings are going to be in school on the same day? And if not, how do their parents accommodate that? So there's all these little details that it seems like we have a lot of time to figure out, but we really don't. Um, Ontario's track record with these sort of things isn't so great. So hopefully we'll figure something out, but oh man, it just looks like an awful mess. Yeah. Nine weeks and and counting. Uh, Enjoyed our chat today. Thank you so much, reader in the Globe Mail, Robin Urbach. Thanks very much. Thanks. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.